The deadliest week for Israel since the ground incursion began a verdict in The Hague and a lot of talks and negotiations, but no word yet on a hostage deal. It's unholy. I'm Yannick Levy of Channel 12 in Tel Aviv. And I'm Jonathan Friedland of The Guardian in London. It's unholy. Two Jews on the news from Keshet Podcast. Um, Yoni, we, have, as you've just said, there we have got a lot of very substantial and uh, significant stuff to get into. Not all of it light. I think it's fair to say it's going to be. There's some heavy duty ground to cover. So I thought we would begin by just mentioning to our listeners uh, something rather different, a rather lovely message that has come in to both of us, sent to us from long-time listener Gail in Scotland. Uh, she writes like this, Hi, both. First, thanks for your wonderful podcast. See, Gail knows how to begin a message. <laughs> uh, I live in Scotland and have been listening to it with great pleasure for a long time. I recently introduced your podcast to my dad, who lives in Israel, and he too is now a devotee. So much so that every week he asks me, have you listened to Yoni and Johnny yet? <laughs> Now, I guess you wouldn't particularly appreciate pet names, but I did think it was cute. And you are now called that within our family. With all love, of course, keep doing what you do. Gail, how, how, what do you think, Yoni? What I mean, first think? of all, first of all, Gail, thank you for sending it our way. There have been really not a lot of reasons to smile in the last three and a half months. And this put a smile on both our faces. And first of all, thank you for that. Um, I absolutely love that. I have to say that I don't know if you know this. I mean, obviously, Johnny is your nickname by everyone who knows you. The only person in the world who calls me Yoni is my mother. She's the only one allowed uh -huh. to do that. So it is a, a common nickname in the Levy family. Uh, but um, my mother can do it because she named me. So that's okay. But the, the, the lovely thing, I mean, what I love about about this, first of all, before we get to our names, is that this is exactly what we wanted when we started to do this podcast. We wanted it to be a centerpiece of a conversation uh, amongst families that some of them are separated by geography. Some live in Israel, some live in diaspora. And this is when this is becoming their, you know, conversational piece, of course, we, we talk about Israel politics and policymakers listen and all that. But this is the heart of what we're trying to do here. Um, and so I think that that makes a lot of sense. Maybe a moment of Hebrew, uh, Johnny, which we should say, this, the names sound similar. They have a separate meaning and separate etymology. Jonathan is, of course, Yonatan. And it means, it's a biblical name. It means God's gift. As yep. I often feel when we do this podcast. <laughs> you feel I've um, internalized. You feel I've internalized <laughs> no, that etymology say, somehow. <laughs> and, uh, no, no, I thought I thought I was trying to say something nice. It came out Israeli. But anyway, um, my <laughs> name uh, means something different, which is um, small dove. That is the meaning of the name. Yona is dove. Yonit is small dove. Little dove. It's, yeah, it doesn't sound better when you say it with your <laughs> accent. It's still the meaning of my name. So a little bit different, but still, I mean, it sounds similar. I think we should... Uh, we should three years that. in, three years in, Yoni, a major revelation here that you have, <laughs> but that anybody in the world calls you Yoni. I think that's fantastic. I didn't know that. Listeners, you and I are finding this out at exactly the same time that there is somebody in the universe who calls Yoni Yoni, and Yoni and Johnny is irresistible. If we were naming the podcast now, I think Yoni and Johnny might just edge it. There was a show in Britain for many years called The Two Ronnies. 
This is almost there. The the Yonnies, Yonny and Johnny. But as you say, for years, and many, many people call me Johnny, so I'm used to it, but that you are sometimes called Yonny, albeit by your mother alone, is major. I cannot promise or guarantee that I may not resort to that name every now and again. And uh, I think we have talked enough about ourselves to go we on have, to talk about other news. We have, and we did say we were going to go for that just because we, we need a little bit of light in yep. uh, in these current times. I mean, we do anyway, In this, ever, ever since October the 7th, we felt that way. This week has an extra sort of gravity to it because, of course, uh, at the weekend, it's fallen on Shabbat. On Saturday will be uh, the 27th of January. That is, of course... Uh, Holocaust Memorial Day. Israel does have its own uh, Remembrance Day later on in the year, Yom HaShoah. But internationally, uh, Holocaust Memorial Day is always fallen then on January the 27th to mark the day that Auschwitz was liberated in the first wave by the Red Army. And the liberation of Auschwitz has come to stand in for the day of commemoration for the uh, Shoah. I think it's fair to say there is an extra resonance this year, I would say on two levels. I mean, the first level is obviously the one you'll be feeling where you are, your need. Yes, I mean, you mentioned that. It it is a Holocaust Memorial Day after the worst uh, massacre against Jews since the Holocaust happened in Israel. And, you know, I can't not think about the fact that on Pesach, we always say, right, in every generation they rise up to kill us. Uh, we didn't actually know until this year that it was meant as a preparation conversation, as not as a history lesson. Um, it resonates very deep this year. Now, the lines and the similarities of what happened on October 7th uh, are obviously clear. I think it's, it's important to say, particularly to our Israeli listeners, that Israel is still a very strong country. Um, and the ethos of protecting its citizens has been severely hurt by what happened in October 7th. And, and of course, the fact that there are hostages still in Gaza under the ground of soldiers fighting there means that the ethos has been weakened, but it's still there. I think what we feel now is just the helplessness um, of, of that situation, right? Of, of the fact that this is where we are, that there are still hostages, that the war has not yet been decisively won. You know, all that adds to to the days we are in, uh, of course. The, the parallel I made right at the very beginning, the word I used more at the very start, was not a Shoah echo, but rather pogrom, the Jewish suffering and persecution that predates the 1940s, uh, particularly always, for my, uh, to my mind, zeroing in on that sense of abandonment and helplessness, those accounts that we have from so many victims on October the 7th of waiting hours and hours and hours and asking, where is the army? That particular point of being defenseless is why some people have said that, you know, about October the 7th, before then, up to October the 6th, we were Israeli, after then we were Jewish. It's that particular point, um, and I think in a way that goes predates the Shoah. Nevertheless, obviously, it's in the air. From outside Israel and from people who are you know, vehemently opposed to Israel, the echo is something different, and that is sharpened by the decision of the International Court of Justice to give its sort of, as it were, interim ruling, its judgment on the provisional measures that were asked of it by the government of South Africa, on Friday, Friday the 26th of January, just on the eve of Holocaust Memorial Day, uh, the ICJ 
giving its uh, first judgment on on the request from the South African government that, for example, the court in The Hague order a halt to Israeli operations. Now, as you and I speak, that judgment has not yet come down. We're waiting for it. You know, we don't know what it's uh, what it's going to say. The timing is, you know, it maybe just to be benign, it's unfortunate that it should come at that moment. It will be seized on. I think this is one prediction you can make. There will be people on social media or elsewhere who will say, this is the case that says the victims of genocide and the Holocaust, marked on Holocaust Memorial Day, are committing a genocide in Gaza. That was the accusation of the government of South Africa that was brought to the ICJ. Uh, The court, it's understood, will not be delivering a ruling on that. That judgment could take years on the actual question before them of whether what Israel is doing in Gaza legally meets the definition of genocide. Obviously, Israel vehemently arguing that it does not, but instead they will be giving this judgment on provisional measures. And all around, since October the 7th, there have been people making this facile and, you know, offensive comparison and this sort of facile observation, asinine observation, ah, the victims have become the perpetrators and so on. It happens every year on uh, Holocaust Memorial Day anyway, that there are people around to say the new Nazis are the Jews, etc., Israelis. Uh, That will have extra intensity in um, 2024. Yes, I I mean, we, I think we and our listeners uh, would agree that that whole line of of thinking is just um, abhorrent. And and you mentioned Israel uh, denies the the claims of genocide. Of course, the United States and the UK, Germany itself has joined Israel uh, on the side of Israel in this this case. I I should say that the way that Israelis kind of uh, look at it, maybe generally, and this connects the ICJ and and the Holocaust Memorial Day in their thinking. I think that what they kind of feel is that throughout history, Jews were tolerated, right? Never accepted or trusted or liked, but they were tolerated as long as they acted according to the demands laid down by the non-Jews. And I think in this way, they feel like the the hypocrisy coming out of of the uh, International Court of Justice and the fact that if indeed a provisional uh, decision is that Israel should stop the war, which is what Israel fears, comes out, then that is saying Israel can't defend itself uh, against what has happened to it. And of course, we'll shift completely the conversation into areas of uh, what Israel is doing in Gaza instead of remembering that Israel actually didn't start this war. I think there are too many people around the world who have already forgotten that. But as you say, we are waiting. Uh, as we record this on Thursday, we are yet to find out uh, what the uh, verdict is in this uh, provisional uh, ruling, but Israel is definitely taking it very seriously and at this moment quite concerned about what can be the decision. Now, as uh, listeners know, I have been uh, this last week about as far away as you can get from what's happening in Israel and Gaza, and yet it intruded very directly. Uh, as you know, I was in New Hampshire for the uh, re- for the primary vote there, uh, mainly going on on the Republican side, Nikki Haley, Donald Trump going to all their rallies and so on. On the Democratic side, officially, there was no uh, you know approved primary, but there still was one um, going on because New Hampshire holds it. And there was a campaign there to write in on the ballot paper the name of 
the president, Joe Biden. But there was also another campaign to write in the word ceasefire. And it related to, obviously, the demand that Israel ceasefire in Gaza. There were, I'm not saying everywhere, but there were lawn signs and posters around the main city, Manchester, New Hampshire, with the word ceasefire. There in the snows of New England, the battle over Israel and Hamas and how Israel fights Hamas was taken even there. That felt, you know, significant to me. But I think the importance of it was it illustrated very vividly the political problem Joe Biden has in holding together his coalition. He needs every single vote if he's going to beat Donald Trump in November. And it now does seem pretty inevitable that he's going to beat Donald Trump. He needs every single vote, including from his own side. And there are Democrats, especially younger Democrats, and I encountered them, who are angry with him. And they have a list, but almost top of the list at the moment, is his support for Israel and his refusal, as they see it, to demand that Israel cease fire. It was just a very visible way of seeing what we've talked about for months here. You know, there on the snowy and icy roads and streets of New Hampshire, the word ceasefire, the Middle East conflict is political, and it's there for Joe Biden. And as part of that pressure, we know that this week he was urging and falling out with uh, Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu over this question, not of ceasefire, but of what comes afterwards. Yes, and uh, it's a version of he said, he said when uh, the president comes out and says Netanyahu did not say no to a Palestinian state, Netanyahu. Uh, by the way, it's always um, the situation which you speak off record to American officials and to Israeli politicians. They all say the conversation is there are never big differences. But when Netanyahu comes out and he has his political base, he has to somehow deny what he said. Israel is saying pretty clearly that the Palestinians live in Gaza and they will rule uh, Gaza. They just don't want Hamas to rule Gaza. But they're not saying, th th this is a quote by uh, Defense Minister Yoav Gallant from last week, but they're not saying what the Americans want to hear uh, clearly, which is Palestinian authority or revitalized uh, Palestinian authority in Gaza. That Netanyahu is not saying. It is significant. Yeah, except he's going out of his way not just to rule out the specific body of the Palestinian Authority, but the really the principles. This is only how it sounds to American ears and ears around the world. The principle of Palestinian self-government, because there was this line from him saying, Israel has to be in security control of the whole area, and that is incompatible with Palestinian sovereignty. And that feels like an in-principle position against Palestinian statehood. And they, you know, they, they could argue about what the vehicle is if he, but it seems outside, and this was running quite big in American political conversation, this was a sort of in-principle objection to Palestinian statehood rather than some language which you might do to bridge the two positions. Um, it seems as if and that's, again, how it's understood in the American media, certainly, as uh, political positioning by Netanyahu, who likes the idea of going up against and challenging the American president. And this language about, you know, sometimes you have to disagree even with your best friends. You have to, you know, agree when they're right and disagree when they're wrong. He thinks that's a winning issue for him. I have to say, I encountered among, you know, a few Democrats and others who uh, I was speaking with this last week, you know, head-shaking disbelief uh, that Netanyahu does this, because their view is 
they think putting themselves in Israel's shoes, the American, the relationship with the United States is the number one strategic priority or asset for Israel. What is this man doing? Jeopardizing it, especially given how amazing Joe Biden has been for Israel. Even people who previously were a bit agnostic on that issue and thinking, oh, maybe Donald Trump will be better. A lot of those people are now saying, who could ever do, do give more solidarity than Joe Biden and take such a political hit for it? And yet Netanyahu thinks it helps him to jab and poke at this American president who's doing so much uh, for Israel. But I think what is important to notice is that Netanyahu is the mastermind of talking in two different languages and saying something to the American audience or to the English-speaking audience that they will like to hear and something to the Israeli audience and specifically to his base in Hebrew uh, that they will like to hear. I think the days of that are over. I mean, obviously, everyone has Google Translate and knows what the prime minister says in Hebrew. So that is going to be a game that will become increasingly more difficult to play as the months uh, go by. Now, we should say we are still in a war in Gaza. And in fact, this has been uh, the darkest week for Israel since the beginning of the ground incursion. 21 Israeli soldiers, uh, reservists, died this week in an incident that is a combination of Hamas firing RPG rockets, triggering a blast, collapsing two buildings that the soldiers themselves rigged for demolition, a terrible tragedy. And, and this incident takes place um, very close uh, to the border, uh, about 600 meters from a place you know well. You've been there, Kibbutz Kisufim. And the, the essential plan was to create a buffer zone uh, around the Gaza Strip to allow for, at some point, yes, the return of uh, Israelis who have been displaced by this uh, war. You know, we have talked so much about Israel being a conscript army, about these people being reservists, leaving their houses, their homes, their families, their jobs, and just enlisting and, and going into this, this war. You read the list of where they come from. It is almost a cross-section of Israel, and you have reservists from Haifa and from Tel Aviv. You have someone from Rahat, which is a Bedouin city. You have people from the periphery. You have people from settlements. This is Israel. This is Israel's face, and Israelis took a very, very severe blow this week. It hurt the country um, very much. And to me, partly again, because I was in the US, it was one of those examples of, again, how this war is seen so differently inside and outside. There was a headline in the New York Times where the first half expressed what you're saying, uh, which is Israelis grieving at biggest loss of life so far, as soldiers were engaged in raising buildings to clear a buffer zone. And the, the stories were balanced with Terrible for Israelis and those families who are grieving. But look what these people were doing, these IDF soldiers. They were destroying buildings, raising a whole area so that there is a security zone. And the that qualified, to put it very mildly, the degree of sympathy that there was around the world for this because people, they, you know, the media accounts of it were saying that they were engaged in something which, New York Times version, may possibly be a war crime, was how it was put. And I just mentioned that not to argue the point, but rather to say, every point, this thing looks completely different from inside and from outside. And the focus outside was partly, yes, on the loss of life, but also on the act, the operation that, uh, that brought that death toll. I agree with you that things look completely differently from the outside and the inside. And I think that um, in this case, it is just impossible for Israelis and even a lot of them who really care about what is said about Israel outside. It's, it's impossible to say we can't. Look, 
large swaths of the Israeli public will agree we cannot continue to live in a distance of 100 meters or 200 meters from Gaza. Like something is going to be done. If you want, if you in fact want life to continue and this war to be over, I think you should support an idea of this kind of buffer zone between uh, Israel and Gaza after we saw uh, what happened. And in that context of how these things look differently and how you know they're reported outside, a very big story internationally. I'm not sure whether Israelis would have expected it to be, but the episode on Wednesday where there was a strike on a shelter in Khan Yunis, a United Nations shelter killing at least nine people were you know, competing claims about who did it. But just making the point that events like that, incidents like that, they make very big news abroad and internationally, even if perhaps they are not exactly leading the news inside Israel. Yeah, and we should say that Israel is uh, intensely uh, looking at this. It says that it is not uh, the one that fired at this uh, shelter, and it is Hamas. We should mention uh, and say that the desperation of the hostages' uh, families that are still hostages that are, in fact, still in Gaza, so there are 136 hostages. Israel knows uh, that 29 of them are not alive. That is still a huge number of Israeli citizens kidnapped from their homes and from their towns and from their kibbutzim, held in the most inhumane uh, way, and we know more and more about that because we hear the stories of the hostages coming out. And some of them speaking so elegantly and so, you know, with few words. But you understand what they're saying when Aviva Siegel, who's a hostage that came back, I think, uh, after 50 days, says that she saw uh, what the, the Hamas terrorists were doing. Right. She said they made these young girls their dolls. We understand what she is saying. And and you realize this and the desperation, by the way, of every Israeli and not the hostages families feel this the worst, but just think of that nightmare. Your family member is held in a way that you know is inhumane and you can't do anything. We talked about this last week, how the, the fact that this has become a political issue is a tragedy because, again, in the, in the large sense of it, the left is saying we have to put a prolonged pause on this war. And we need to get the hostages out. Any kind of deal that's been floated this week, uh, an issue of, a, we're talking about a one-month uh, ceasefire. And the right is essentially saying we have to win Hamas. This is a tragedy because this square can't be circled. You can't say we have to defeat Hamas now and we have to return the hostages now. It's not going to happen uh, uh, together. And you see people like Smotrich, like Ben Gvir, when that story about a month ceasefire came out saying, no, 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 we have to continue the war. These are the people that are holding together Netanyahu's coalition. And if they say this, then he is hearing this. And again, we have a story leaked this week by our correspondent, Yawan Avraham, saying that Netanyahu was talking against Qatar in a meeting with hostages' families. Essentially... Netanyahu was a very careful person. He knew this might come out. And the question being, is he trying to pressure Qatar by this coming out? Or on the other hand, is he, as some of his opponents are saying, trying to sabotage a deal because he knows that a, that a deal might throw his coalition away? It, these are terrible questions to consider. At the end of the day, most Israelis still want Hamas to be defeated. I think there's a lot of people around the world who want this. But the question of the hostages is something that cannot leave our uh, conscience, even for a moment. Um, Qatar, of course, took some umbrage at these remarks, mm -hmm. which leaked out, and they were put out uh, by uh, the the Prime Minister of Israel speaking negatively about them. Uh, they have become crucial 
players in this and their help is needed in terms of getting hostages out. So I'm not sure that was, you know, smart diplomacy or politics. I'm very struck by you saying left and right there, that uh, how left want to pause in order to get the hostages out and right to saying just keep fighting. My sense, and, and, and it may have actually changed, was that there were even some people on the right, ordinarily, you know, who would be in, in that camp, who nevertheless thought that it, argue that it is the number one priority has to be bringing hostages back. If it is fallen on left-right lines, almost culture war lines in Israel, that is not great um, for for the unity of the country. And that's, uh, you know, I, I, don't, I think that's perhaps a shift because there were some people uh, initially who were saying, with a very heavy heart, we have to do whatever it takes to get everyone back. And it, maybe it is just lining up left and right that way. I've always talked about how things look differently outside. Here's something where I think, and often cite the media, I think the international media have not kept it front and centre in the consciousness in the way that you were saying it is in Israel, the hostages and their plight. There will always be a mention of them in any news account. There'll be, there are the, you know, the odd feature or whatever, but it isn't front and centre in global consciousness in the way it is in Israel. And you mentioned that once that very appalling language about dolls, which, as you say, we don't need to elaborate on what that might mean. I, I saw as an aside a reference in a piece about the tunnels and talking about the, the Hamas tunnel network in Gaza and just talking about how, the, and among their many other uses, they have all been also been used to uh, hold the hostages captive and it just said as an aside you know without access to daylight in, in the hostages including uh, a year old infant i mean just pause on that and imagine we, you know anybody who's been uh, who is a parent just imagining a one-year-old held in the dark from october onwards till now it is just unimaginable and i don't think the hostages are talked about that much in the conversation mm. outside uh, outside Israel. But what did make a lot of news, though, was this offer, this suggestion of a two-month uh, pause uh, that would allow the, all the hostages to come out. And the notion that that has not gone anywhere, I think um, people around the world thought, do it if that's what it takes. Yeah, one more thing to say. You say this hasn't been making enough news. Well, I, I think we remember other instances, not many of uh, hostages being taken. Uh, Boko Haram comes to mind. We spoke to Scott Galloway last week, who reminded us that uh, actresses like Salma Hayek and Julia Roberts were all holding this. I think I can think of a few other people. Also, a former first lady was holding a sign saying, bring back our girls. Well, somehow when it's Israeli girls and Jewish uh, young women, then there are less... Um, let's say, assertive with the signs. So that's something we notice We notice in here as well. No, and it, uh, absolutely. It, either that is a kind of anti-Semitic exceptionalism that says Jews don't count. That's one possibility. Is the other possibility that it has got muddied because of the Israeli response? And therefore, that's has it sort of paralysed people where they thought, ah, if I do this, then what do I say about the Israeli response and what's happening in Gaza and, and sort of deer in headlights and think, oh, it's better to say nothing. I just wonder if that is, it's not, it's not admirable, but I think a lot of the people who were easily, uh, you know, posting on social media then and find themselves tongue-tied now, I think that is part of it. 
I think it might be part of it. I just, it's the same. We're just making the same argument. The same people who would defend any other nation's uh, actions after a massacre like this happens and somehow, of course, don't find words to do it when it comes to Israel are the same people who would, you know, condemn any sort of attempt to do this when it's uh, innocent people being kidnapped from their houses, but don't find the words when it comes to Israel. It's the same continuation of the same problem, I think. I mean, all the way through this uh, war and the debate around it has been this accusation of uh, double standards uh, on the lines you've just been saying. And nowhere has that been voiced more sharply than about the academy, the campus battle. We talked a lot about those three university heads uh, when they appeared before a congressional committee, and it's led now to two of those three losing their jobs, most recently Claudine Gay at Harvard. Harvard, as a result of that, has uh, formed a task force, a kind of commission to investigate anti-Semitism and the university's problem in this area, perhaps. And their choice of co-chair of that uh, task force has triggered now another row because appointed to that job was the professor of Jewish history at Harvard, among other things, Derek uh, Penzlar. He was to serve as co-chair. That appointment has brought a, uh, a whole lot of condemnation, including from a former president of Harvard, former Treasury Secretary uh, Larry Summers, who has said that, uh, you know, he has admiration for Dr. Penzlar's academic work, that he says that he believes him to be a person of goodwill without a trace of personal anti-Semitism. However, I believe that given his record, he is unsuited to leading a task force whose function is to combat what is seen by many as a serious anti-Semitism problem at Harvard. His criticism is that he thinks uh, Dr. Penzlar has, you know, an insufficiently wide view of anti-Semitism and also has made statements about Israel. He has talked about the application of the word apartheid. He's appeared to support that uh, description of Israel as an apartheid state and also has used some of that kind of settler colonialism discourse about Israel. And so, according to Summers, this is yet another example of a double standard between anti-Semitism and other forms of prejudice. Lots of defenders for uh, Derek Penzler on the other side. So this row at Harvard, and it's, it's almost a sort of stand in a microcosm for the wider row argument about anti-Semitism on American campuses, in the American public life on the left, it's it's sort of intensified, and you know many people I was speaking to one actually who's you know formerly involved, former professor at Harvard, just saying that every stage, uh, the college has just handled this very very badly. So again, if you are going to choose someone to co-chair this uh, issue, try to not choose someone who is controversial. Try not choose someone who has tried to minimize the anti-Semitism problem in Harvard. I think that is you know as you uh, said, I think you need to bring in a clear slate on this. I think Larry Summers was, was uh, right about this. I think we're itching very closely by this story to into just an elegant segue into our chutzpah awards. It just kind of makes sense somehow. Yeah, quite often, actually, our chutzpah awards goes to people who have just sort of you know misread or got it wrong 
about anti-Semitism. And uh, no exception this week, Elon Musk, a candidate for our Chutzpah Award, he made a trip this week to Auschwitz-Birkenau. There will be some people who say for that he deserves a Mensch Award. Isn't it good that he's done that, that uh, he's going to see the reality of where anti-Semitism leads and so on? When he got there, he admitted to being, in his words, frankly naive about anti-Semitism now that he'd seen Auschwitz and he took his toddler son with him. Um, I'm afraid I'm in ungenerous mood on this one. I, do, I think this is more chutzpah than mensch. Chutzpah because he's a smart guy who has been around a while. He's not a kid. He's had plenty of time to know about anti-Semitism. He didn't have to go to Auschwitz to see it. Lots of people were telling him. And the reason they were telling him is because he was opening the floodgates and has opened the floodgates to anti-Semitism on his the platform that he owns and takes a very direct interest in, uh, formerly Twitter, now X. He's the one who allowed back a whole lot of accounts who had previously been suspended or banned, who straight away were pose, uh, posting horrific things about Jews. Uh, the Anti-Defamation League and others immediately said this about him. He then went to war with the ADL. He's been retweeting and replying to all kinds of horrible anti-Semitism. He said that one of those posts he now regrets and was the dumbest thing he'd done. You know, strong field. Um, mm. uh, it's, you know, it's a chutzpah, to, to, in my view, to for this guy who has been mainstreaming and platforming anti-Semitism to think that turning up at Auschwitz and calling himself frankly naive is acceptable. It didn't seem to me to be uh, real uh, contrition because of how late it's come and because there was no excuse. He had plenty of information, plenty of people were telling him, instead of listening, he uh, turned his fire on them. So I think a nominee for Chutzpah Award to Elon Musk and his visit to Auschwitz. I'll just add one thing. I think that if I'm not mistaken, he also said, he also claimed that if social media existed at the time of the Holocaust, it could have prevented it. Which I think that adds a little bit to uh, the chutzpah nomination, just because I can say so many things about that. But first of all, social media existed on October 7th. And not only did it not prevent the massacre, it actually galvanized people seeing it on places like Facebook Live and Telegram and other places where the atrocities were streamed live. And none of these social media platforms at any moment stopped uh, what was going on. There is, though, another rival candidate for chutzpah, and I think you need to share it with the group, Yoni. <laughs> it, t- it is a tough competition this week because it's a story that came out of our channel, Channel 12. Our very talented correspondent, Daphne Liel, reported this week that uh, Sarah Netanyahu, Prime Minister Netanyahu's wife, tried to have government spokesperson Elon Levy removed from his role due to the fact that he participated in the 2023 judicial reform protests. Now, there's a lot to say about this. Uh, obviously, I think it's safe to say that Elon Levy has become one of the most effective, if not the most effective, spokespersons for for Israel, essentially, during this uh, war. This has been noticed inside Israel and outside Israel, of course. And uh, the question of the involvement of uh, the prime minister's family, particularly his wife and eldest son, um, is something that has been, of course, circulating in the media. In this case, uh, the fact that uh, Elon Levy was participating in protests was not a secret. He said it himself. He said he doesn't care now about politics. What he cares about is to help the state uh, of Israel. So this was uh, the story that we reported on. And of course, it had a lot of pickup um, in Israel and outside. 
He did, and he absolutely has become uh, one of those faces. One of the things that struck me about that was everybody knew that he'd been involved in the uh, anti-judicial coup protests. It, just, it struck me that what kind of bubble are the Netanyahu's living in, where this was, you know, it took them till late January to know what, you know, anybody with a Twitter account or anyone with a phone knew a long time ago. So that surprised me. It made me think that maybe they are they are in a bit of a bubble there um mench awards I, I i know we've got one but i thought on you know again we have rival nominees i thought a first mention would go to a group three politicians uh, in britain members of parliament from muslim and palestinian backgrounds who r- r- issued in a letter to the guardian actually a call that britain's come together to use holocaust memorial day as a moment of to get a unity rather than division and not to allow differences over uh, Gaza to inflame tensions between communities. And Saeed Avasi, who's a, a conservative member of the House of Lords, uh, Labour MP Naz Shah, and particular mention to Leila Moran, because she's a Liberal Democrat MP, but the only British Member of Parliament of Palestinian heritage. They wrote this letter saying Holocaust Memorial Day was, quote, a moment to remember the systematic slaughter of six million Jewish people for no reason other than they, who they were. Obviously, to go on to say it's undoubtedly true, horrific violence we are seeing is heightening tensions. But in effect, let's keep this out of this. And we can agree that uh, if someone scrawls swastikas on bridges, that is no expression of solidarity with the Palestinian people and so on. In a way, a letter like that shouldn't need to be sent. It should be unremarkable. But given where we are, in two ways, I think this is really worthy of recognition. The first is, and this is crazy to have to say this, but the fact that their letter said that the people killed were Jews. There is so much sort of universalization of the Holocaust going on where, you know, we talked the other day about that movie One Life where the trailer for it doesn't even mention that the victims were Jews. A desire to see it as just a sort of moment where man's inhumanity to man. Credit to these three for saying this was anti-Semitism, it was about Jews. But second, uh, I think it's, um, you know, we should mention the mayor, one of the people involved in pulling it together was Brendan Cox, who's the widower of a um, Labour MP, Joe Cox, who was murdered in 2016. And her big position was community togetherness. These, the, it is the case that Holocaust Memorial Day sometimes is used by people to immediately not talk about the Holocaust, but rather uh, talk about other events, including Gaza, and it can turn into a, a, a real flashpoint and be very painful. And here's Brendan Cox and those three uh, women MPs saying, let's not do that. And I think um, credit to them for doing that, a really good initiative. Okay, I think that's a worthy mensch. I will just uh, submit another candidate for this week, uh, and that is a story about a supermarket chain in Germany responding to uh, the extreme uh, right party, the AfD, um, and saying essentially this, we are taking down from our supermarket shelves uh, all of the products that are non-German. And what happened, essentially, was that the supermarket pretty much emptied out. By the way, it's a very lovely gimmick in the way that it, you know, illustrates quite clearly what this means. It's done very nicely. The supermarket's name, and we should give them the credit, uh, their name is Ideka, and they're a chain. And I think that this is really done, you know, it's rather brilliant in the way that they did it. When you see the video, uh, it's brilliantly done because you just see all these bemused 
shoppers arriving turning up at the sort of you know cheese counter and there's nothing there so all credit to Idika for just uh, rather brilliantly making vivid and dramatizing uh, what is true of many many societies which is they are utterly dependent and uh, could not exist without those people who have chosen to join them rather than being born there and of course extra residents coming from Germany which knows better than most places uh, where the ideas of those far-right nationalist parties can lead. If you are enjoying the podcast or getting something from it like Gail in Scotland and her and dad. And Harvey, her father. And Harvey, her father. If you are like them and uh, somehow this is part of your routine or even bringing your family together, why not say so in a review on any of the platforms where you get your podcast? Those reviews really help. Every time someone gives us five stars, I was going to say an angel gets his wings in a little reference to It's a Wonderful Life, but um, which was in my mind, by the way, because I was in Bedford, New Hampshire, and it reminded me quite a lot of Bedford Falls. Um, niche reference. Those reviews really do help. Start, you know, if you give five stars, it really helps uh, more people yes. see the podcast. We're delighted. Do spread the word. Uh, actually, not niche. I think the only thing we clearly agree on in this world is Jimmy Stewart. But uh, <laughs> but we shall say our thank yous uh, to Gaia Glazer and Omer Primat and Omri Barak and uh, Johnny Friedland. I will see you next week. I will see you then, Yoni Levy. Yoni <laughs> and Johnny will be back. <laughs> we will.